There's another website called. Are you familiar with that, Nick? Do you know about that? Or yeah, no? but they are, but they are expensive. expensive. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I think they'll still be cheaper than 150k for an app. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's for sure. Am I that's getting ridiculous. Am I getting bent over here? Is that what you're trying to tell me? You're saying you're being really stupid. Okay. So what? Hey, well, you, you don't have a video call on, so we can't tell if you're getting bent over. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 169. That was a preview of our first group Patreon call. We're doing these group calls on the first Friday of each month. So if you want to join us, then become a Patreon. Plus, if you're a Patreon and you miss any of the calls, well, as you heard, we'll be posting the recording of the calls on our Patreon feed. So you'll never feel left out. Of course, those calls will be beep free. So you'll actually be able to hear the tools that we're using to grow our businesses. So don't be shy. Become a Patreon and join us on our next group call. It was kind of cool. Let me back up. Before I did the 30-day subscription, the first thing I did is I went and bought a proper domain name. And if there's low-hanging fruit out there, your domain name is everything. What am I, 33, 34 years old? I mean, I wasn't even old enough to even respect the amount of money that I was making. We were making 30, 40 million a year. And it was just my dad and I. How do you sell something that's not tangible? Because I could sell, but I'm selling a contract now for services. General rule of thumb, just so everybody knows, you know how you make a small fortune in aviation? No, tell us. That's why we're listening. You start with and for those that aspire to that, 100 million is a dangerous amount of money because it's not enough net worth where you can own a $10 million airplane and start pissing it away, but it's enough where you feel like you can. I've never seen more people get whipsawed financially than those that are worth 50 to 100 million. My name is Jason Zilberbrand, 46. I was born in Chicago, Illinois. And you're born in Chicago, Illinois. Is that where you're located today? I'm in the northern suburbs now. So after 40 years of fighting downtown traffic and living in a big city, I got remarried and my second wife got pregnant and she decided that she didn't really want to raise a family downtown and I couldn't really blame her. So we relocated to the North Shore. So now we're about 40 miles northwest of downtown. Does your wife know who the father is? <laughs> hopefully you. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us about your business and what you do? Yeah, so I am the president of VREF, and VREF is one of two authorities of aircraft values. We're like the Kelly's Blue Book, to put it in a consumer term that people will understand. So we're a full comprehensive appraisal company, and that means that we actually have a staff that goes out and does on-site appraisals and desktop appraisals. And then we also have a software program that we offer subscriptions to, software as a service, and our subscribers vary from people who are buying general aviation piston aircraft all the way through commercial. We track about 550 various models. And we have about 7,000 assets that we track on a daily basis. Basically, the business is you're out appraising like airplanes? Yeah. So we have three divisions to the company. The division that I think everybody knows Vera for is the software. So we publish a book quarterly, and then we have a software as a service. We have about 5,000 subscribers, and then we're also the official partner of the AOPA. And the AOPA has around a half a million subscribers that are paying them a monthly membership fee as well. So we're the official appraisal company for the AOPA. 
And we're also their, their valuation guide. And then the second division is our appraisal division. And that's a pure services driven consulting division. All of our appraisers are senior accredited and they go through a ton of training, which we can get into. Everybody's used PAP compliant. And we do a lot of work for financial institutions, banks, states. We do a lot of donations. So there's a bunch of reasons why someone would need an appraisal. And we do about 1,500, 1,600 a year. So we're one of the largest aircraft-specific appraisal companies. And then our third division, which is really a direct result of all the consulting and appraisal work we do, is our litigation services and expert witness. It's time-consuming, but it generates a lot of revenue. We get involved in all sorts of litigation, whether it's breach of contract, damage to an aircraft, and it runs the gamut from hangar catching on fire to somebody walking out to their aircraft and finding their neighbors, unfortunately, wound up a little too close to theirs and did a ton of damage. So then that typically results in litigation and, and we get called in to support one of the sides. How many employees do you have for your business then? The senior management is five of us, and then we have 11 appraisers, and they're strategically located throughout the globe. We have people in Asia, we have people in Central Europe, Australia, and then the bulk of the businesses in the United States. And that's just purely because aviation is a US-driven market. About 70% of the aircraft are here in the United States. It's pretty cool. You have people kind of around the planet. Did you think you'd ever have a business like this? So this was a very interesting acquisition. It, this is after being in the industry for so long, I was actually an early user of VREF when I was in my 20s. So I started using VREF's anniversary and my anniversary are exactly the same. So we both have been around in aviation for 26 years. And when I got into the industry, VREF was literally the new kid on the block. The people that found it, the gentleman that was the original founder of the company, he worked for Aircraft Blue Book, and he didn't really agree with what they were doing at the time. So he decided to go out on his own and start a second valuation guide. A lot of people don't realize just how much research and data we have to crunch on a daily basis to be able to do what we do. And so you know, for him to have gone out in the early days pre-internet and to be able to build a database, my hat's off to him. And I inherited all of his old technology, and I had to rebuild it. And so he was definitely ahead of his time, but it was also my biggest advantage because I had been using the system and the software since really it began. I always had a wish list, so to speak, of stuff I wanted to do to VREF. You know, the early part of my career, I dealt with maintenance on airplanes. And my father started a very large power by the hour company, which is really like an extended warranty for business jets. And at the time, engines and aircraft were very undependable, and they didn't have a high dispatch reliability rating. And there were a lot of occasions where people would go out to do like a demo flight on an airplane, and the aircraft literally would have catastrophic event right then and there. The engine would blow up. And I'm going back now to late 70s through the mid 80s. There's a whole bunch of what we call classic business jets that are all powered by, today it's Honeywell, but the original manufacturer was Garrett Turbine. And my dad's business was basically because of how undependable these engines were and how unsafe they were, people were having a real hard time selling them. So the manufacturers in those days, which was all of three or four, they had these things sitting all over the place. They couldn't sell them. It was a really embarrassing situation when you'd bring a very wealthy man or company to an aircraft to do a demo flight and you know the engine blows up. So to mitigate all of that, the manufacturer of the engine at the time decided to create a power by the hour program. And so every hour you fly, you pay an hourly rate and the administrator of the program 
collects all of those funds, accrues those funds. And then if there's a catastrophic event, they pay 100% of it. And if it makes the scheduled event, and there's two big scheduled events on a turbine engine, there's the midlife and then there's the overhaul. And on a business jet engine, those events could exceed a million dollars. In some cases, those engines are four or five, ten million dollars a piece. You have this really expensive asset that's flying around that could potentially break at any time. It was a pretty easy sell. The manufacturers combined with the people making the, the aircraft said, you know, this is a great insurance policy. It'll help us sell aircraft. And they did. The problem was is that there were other engine manufacturers and other aircraft being built at the time. And there was nobody offering that type of power by the hour service for them. That's what my dad did. He started JSSI in 89. I was literally at the closing table as a sophomore in high school. And I spent the next, gosh, full time. I started in 94. But so I was there throughout, you know, its infancy. I remember watching my dad work out of a corner office with no windows. And then two years later, he had a window. And three years later, he had three offices. And by the fifth or sixth year, when I was in college, company had grown tremendously. So it was kind of cool. I got to watch this baby grow up. Was your dad always have some type of aviation background? Because yeah, this is kind of cool for you to see his business grow while you're kind of going through college. But I'm just curious, like what background did he have since it sounded like he was kind of integral in you getting in this industry? Yeah. So my dad's an interesting character. My dad's a serial entrepreneur. When I was little, he had a parking business. So he had about 30, 35 parking lots all throughout downtown Chicago. He inherited some of them from his dad who immigrated from Russia and decided he was going to go in the soap business. And he had a soap factory for a while. And when the soap factory didn't do very well, he basically tore the building down and turned it into a parking lot. And that parking lot turned into several. My dad's dad was 47 when my father was born. He was like a grandfather. He's my age. So unfortunately, my grandfather, you know, because of the age gap, I didn't know him very well, but he, due to him getting sick and his old age, my father inherited the business. And then I think my dad, we're going back now to the early 80s, he just got bored with it. Tends to be a trait that I see a lot with entrepreneurs. They, their attention span is short. He sold the business, huge mistake. I think it's probably his number one regret in life is that he sold all of that land in downtown Chicago that is now worth a bloody fortune. It's one of those big regrets, but I think it was a blessing because he really was a street kid. He went to college, but he didn't graduate and born in downtown Chicago. And he was a product of the 60s. And so he builds this parking lot company. He sells it, which at the time was a lot of money. And I think he was bored again. So he, of, of all things, starts a salad dressing company. And I'm going back now to mid 80s. There was a famous restaurant called Alexander's. So my dad convinced Dimitri to give him the recipe to his famous salad dressing. And within two years, my dad had bottlers and it was in every grocery store across the Chicago. And then it was within three states. And basically, my dad created a new category, which was cold, refrigerated, fresh salad dressing. And I don't think he had no clue. I mean, it was a total happy accident. In those days, if you wanted salad dressing, you went down the aisle and you picked out your bottle. And today, when you go through the produce section, now there's a whole rack of refrigerated salad dressings. My dad started that. Marie's came about a year after he launched. And then there was a major grocery chain called Butera, which back in the day was, I mean, they were the big monster and they came and made him an offer. And he said, absolutely. And he sold it. Now my dad is real bored. He has successfully built two businesses, sold them, and he decided he was going to become an investment banker. From there, that's where it gets really strange. At the end of the day, he was sitting in an office and somebody walked in with a business plan. 
And the business plan was powered by the hour for all these other engines. And the man that was tasked with reviewing the business plan had no idea what an airplane was or what an extended warranty was. My dad being, my dad said, look, this is like an extended warranty on a car, you know? And so he read it and he explained it to them. And they're like, we don't want it. We want nothing to do with it. Long story short, my dad walked out, made the guy an offer. They started the business together. Eventually, that man was no longer involved in the business. But the gentleman who he was doing the investment banking with now, all of a sudden, was very interested. And so Rick Haskins was his name. So Rick and my dad started JSSI literally without a clue. I mean, we're talking not a clue about aircraft. Neither one of them had any aviation experience. Certainly, they didn't understand the dynamics of operating aircraft or servicing them, but they had a great business model and there was already this other company doing it and they were very successful, but they were kind of locked in a corner with what they could enroll in terms of the equipment. We fast forward now to 2004. The company now has 3,000 plus engines flying, oh, I can't even tell you how many hours. He turned it from nothing into, I think the trust had over 175 million liquid in 2004. So it was just, from a cash flow standpoint, it was insane. And it was a very interesting time in, in the economy and business aviation. Really, that was the big growth spurt was in the 90s. Let's talk about finding freelance talent for your business or project. Finding the right freelancer can be time-consuming, frustrating, and expensive. Where do you go to find that talent? How much will it cost? How can you be certain they'll even deliver? Thanks to Fiverr, finding the right freelancer doesn't have to be a struggle. I've used Fiverr before, and one of the best things about it is how quick turnaround is to actually get a project done. And Fiverr's marketplace helps you get more done with less. See, Fiverr connects businesses with freelancers who offer hundreds of digital services, including graphic design, copywriting, web programming, film editing, and more. Find out what you're looking for instantly. Search by service, deadline, price, reviews, and more. You'll know exactly what you're paying for upfront. No negotiation needed. And it's 24-7 customer service. Take five and check out fiverr.com and you'll receive 10% off your first order by using my code millionaire. It's so easy. Don't waste any time and get your service done by going to Fiverr. That's F-I-V-E-R-R.com and use code millionaire to get 10% off your first order. Fiverr, it starts here. It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow, I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. Yeah, because that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, because we stopped, I guess, originally kind of in the mid 90s when you were in college, seeing him grow. And then you said over the 10 years later, he had kind of grown it from maybe to five people to you're saying 175 million in revenue or so. Yeah, it was wild. So a couple things that happened. One, all those bad Garrett grenade engines, he got very lucky. None of them exploded. There were no catastrophic or unscheduled losses for, gosh, the first three and a half years of business. Now, mind you, he didn't have a lot of clients. I vividly remember him coming home and saying, I closed number six. It was like a huge deal because people are paying hundreds of dollars an hour to fly and they pay it in arrears. And so he also got very lucky that he was dealing with a very wealthy group of people that paid their bills. Now that changes when you deal with the corporate side of it, but the high net worth individuals were paying 
and the money was going into a trust and word of mouth. And my dad, he's very charismatic. He's an amazing salesman and a very good speaker. And back in those days, pre-internet, we're a road warrior. My dad was on the road three, three and a half weeks a month. I never saw him. My younger brother never saw him. It costs a marriage, but he built this business and he built it in a way that we don't do anymore. He went to these far remote locations to foreign countries and he enrolled people in other places. He used to say it was easy for him to close people in Chicago. So he wanted the challenge. But I think the truth is that he couldn't sit still and he loved other cultures and that he loved eating the food, experiencing all that. So he kind of over time just really fell in love with a couple of places that he was going to, Brazil being one and Central Europe being the other. And then that, of course, was a huge advantage for me because I was young and going with him on all these trips and we weren't going to Wisconsin or to Florida. We were going to Vienna or to Geneva, Switzerland. And I was experiencing a whole separate side of stuff that I had never been exposed to. You know, growing up in downtown Chicago, and I went to a very small private school and probably incredibly sheltered in hindsight, even though it was right smack dab downtown, my parents didn't let me go very far. And so when I went to college, I went to a state school and I really did it on purpose. I really wanted to see what reality was. Not everybody has a father who's a neurosurgeon or a prominent real estate mogul or a celebrity. And those are the kids that I went to school with. So there's got to be a whole bunch of other stuff out there. And so getting to see at a very young age, not only these foreign cultures, but aviation in general was kind of cool. And being in aviation, I think most entrepreneurs are always chasing those emerging markets because it is such a small industry and there are so few of these things flying around. And even in general aviation, when you get to a couple hundred thousand fixed wing aircraft, it's just not a lot. They make that, I think there's 150,000 Ford F-150s made every month. Our fleets are really small and our industry is really small. The cool thing is, is that everybody that has some sort of impact on our lives or our economy, they typically have a private jet or they fly on one through charter or fractional. And so I was getting exposed to the who's who of you know corporate America. I was calling on Fortune 50 flight departments and walking in and not having a clue what I was doing and having directors of maintenance and directors of aviation take time out of their day to teach me. Did you ride on uh, Jeffrey Epstein's private jet or no? <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, you know, private jets and craziness go hand in hand and there's just no shortage of it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So you were saying in your early 20s, mid 20s is kind of when you start flying around all around the world with your dad, seeing his business, because that's right when it was growing, right? In the mid 90s. Yeah. So this was right before the huge dot-com boom, followed by the massive dot-com bust. 96, 97, that's really when I was entrenched in the business. I started in 94, not having any idea what I was doing and being really young and thinking that I could do school part-time at nights and a full-time career. And my dad's work ethic and the way he was raised really instilled that in me. And while I didn't recognize it at the time, it was important that I earned my own way and that I paid my own bills and had a job. I was really struggling with trying to maintain all that back in those days. And I think it was 96, 97. He said, look, you know, now is the opportunity. You go out, you're going to have to get out from behind my shadow. And it was pretty scary because I had always been like his right-hand man. I mean, even when I was a toddler, I remember vividly running around all the parking lots, picking up all the cash because it was a cash business. And if he didn't pick it up that day, he probably never saw it because of, of theft. So I was always my dad's right-hand man. And here I am, my early 20s, and he's going, you got to go. So what they did is they kicked me out of the downtown office in Chicago. They put me in Detroit, Michigan. Was that exciting to you or no? It's the scariest thing that ever happened to me. 
Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, I felt like I was being thrown to the wolves. And I think, you know what it was very reminiscent of? It was like that first week when you go to college. For those who went to college, that first week when you're in the dorms and you don't have a clue, that's how it felt for probably the first three or four months. I was really homesick. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing for a job, as crazy as that sounds. How do you sell something that's not tangible? Because I could sell, but I'm selling a contract now for services. And I know nothing about the equipment and I know nothing about the people. And I knew what these companies did for a living, but the small talk would only get me so far. And if I didn't know enough about the program where I could speak intelligently about it, I wasn't going to be able to sell it. So I used the opportunity really to hunker down and absorb as much as I could. And I was incredibly fortunate. And this is where I think the mentoring phase of my life started. When I went to Detroit, I shared an office with a man named Lucino. And at the time he was with Boeing Capital. Boeing Capital was a division of Big Boeing Corporation, and he did financing of aircraft. Did this guy work for your dad too, or y'all just happened to share offices and have different companies? Lou was a minority shareholder in Jess on 10%. Which was the name of the company that your dad started? JSSI, Jesse is what everybody called it. I think this was kind of my dad and Rick, his partner's way of keeping leash on me. Go, we're going to send you out, but you're not going to really be out on your own. And that was kind of the part that I totally missed at that age. I didn't realize that Lou was going to be there, that I was going to have this mentor. And, and Lou really stepped up. I mean, he not only did he take me under his wing and teach me everything there was to know, he gave me the keys to his airplane. He gave me his pilots. I mean, I was literally using his little Baron probably two or three days a week. I was running all over the Midwest. And because I was seen as friend or his junior, a lot of people just accepted it. It was crazy. I never saw anybody with a name be able to get me in a door. And I'd be like, Lou, I can't get this guy to call me back. Oh, go see him tomorrow. And so it was a huge advantage trying to figure out the lay of the land, so to speak. And so with that, I wound up actually doing incredibly well. I spent almost five years in Detroit. I learned what I had to learn to sell the program effectively. I was able at that point to start recognizing deficiencies in business and weaknesses in our contracts. How were you getting paid? Were you paid like at a commission? Were you starting to make more money personally? Yep. I was commission salesman from the day I started, which it was a huge opportunity. I mean, you know, I, my first job was a candy store salesman when I was a kid. And then I think I finally graduated to the lifeguard status and I was a really good tennis player. So I did the tennis pro thing for a while. I worked at the board of trade as a runner and I really thought that that was going to be a career path. So here I am, sales guy. My dad owns the business, but I knew nothing. And I knew that he had always been a commission type of person. And we talked about it and he said, look, we could put you on a salary and this is what you're going to make. And if you want to drive a BMW and you want to do all these things, and it's probably not going to happen. He's like, so you're going to get out and you're going to earn it and you're going to bust your butt and you're going to work hard. And if you know how to sell, you'll close. And of course, people think that everything was hand fed. But I mean, even if you get a really hot lead and you don't know what you're doing, you're probably not going to close the guy. So I learned by failure. I just kept going at it. Rejection was just part of the game, being hung up on all the time. And a lot of it I found wasn't because I didn't know what I was doing. It was because I was working for a really young company in a young industry with people that made absolute fortunes. And then that lends itself to them being an expert. When you're dealing with a bunch of people that obviously know a whole lot about their business and they try and apply that knowledge to somebody else's industry, what can create, I wouldn't say debates or arguments, but I don't think people of that caliber like being told what they don't know. So how much money did you actually end up making by the time you had left Detroit? Because I want to kind of fast forward to whenever you took over the business that you have now, but I also want to understand how much money you had and the age you were so people can relate. 
Sure. I was probably earning 150 to 175,000 in commissions those first couple of years in Detroit. I was doing great. I certainly was making more money than any of my friends. And I had two BMWs, not one, and everything was going great. And then we hit 99. And that was a huge opening or uh, eye-opening moment to me because I never experienced a recession or a market blow up. So the dot-com bust in aviation typically is shadowed by the Great Recession of 08. But I will share with you that in terms of aviation, I had never seen aircraft depreciate so quick and so many people lose so much money so fast. I remember sitting in Lou's office and literally listening to all the dot-com guys of the day, which was probably what AOL and Netscape and just some really crazy companies that no longer exist. There were bidding wars on these aircraft. I need the BBJ. Okay. How much do you want to pay for it? It's like, you know, you get to a point where you're now you're seeing massive premiums being paid for these aircraft. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's over. And the aircraft prices plummet just along with the stock market. And right as soon as we recover, what happens? 2001 and 9-11. And 9-11 in aviation was just horrific. And for Jesse, the company, it was the scariest moment ever because, again, our revenue was tied to utilization. People pay us when they fly. And when you stop flying, we stop, we, our money stopped coming in. It was like, you know, think quick on the feet. So here I am, 21. I'm making a phenomenal living. And I did really, really well up until 9-11. And then my income just basically plateaued. And then it started to drop. And I was like, again, at that $175,000, you know, $160,000 a year cap. There was nothing I could do to break it. Well, what's worse than plateauing is even when you're saying you start seeing it go down. That's even more frustrating, it seemed like. Yeah. And I think sales guys, at least those that I know that are really good, you know, there's some superstitious character traits that we have. And we're all a little crazy, I think, because we have swings. The emotional swings are very steep and very high and then very low. The lows are real low. The highs are real high. For a sales guy that lives on commission, if you haven't sold anything in a while, you start to feel like you're worthless and your self-worth goes to the toilet. And then once that happens, people can sense it on the phone and it tends to be the self-inflicted, never-ending cycle that you can't get out of. And I think that I was certainly starting to go through that. I mean, Again, it was nothing that I did. And I think that that was the worst part about it because another popular character trait is that we're all control freaks. That's why I get up at five o'clock in the morning to go work out because I know that that's the part of the day that I have some major influence over in terms of control. If I can't close and the guy doesn't want to talk to me and it's like, you know, the boss is going to close the flight department and now all of a sudden the airplanes are going away and I'm going, oh my God, this industry is horrible. Why would anybody want to do this? I remember going to my dad and saying, you know, I cannot believe what you got me into. You should have left me alone and this is awful. And he's like, don't worry, things will work out. It's a very cyclical industry. And he was right. By 2003, things were kind of back to normal. Utilization was going back up. But unfortunately, what happened then is that my dad's partner, Rick, got real sick. He fell into a coma. I think he got meningitis when he went to Africa for a business trip and came back, never really fully recovered. That was the moment that deer in headlights for my father, because my father was a great salesman, but he was the furthest thing from a president or a CEO. He's not the guy that's going to sit in the office. He's not the guy that's going to try and figure out what people should be doing. He'll go and he'll kill himself in the trenches, but he's not going to run it. There was nobody else to. I mean, that was it. There was really three of them basically who had split the duties. My dad taking on the sales. And then there was a woman named Marla who had taken on some of the admin. And then Rick was the president. He took on basically the face of the company. And so when the face goes away, my dad said, look, I don't think we have a choice. We're going to have to sell the business. And I think the indicators were, or at least in his mind, is that they were too big to be a mom-pop company anymore. And he didn't have the horsepower or the resources to 
get them to a big corporation. And I think that that takes a lot to admit that you don't have what it takes to take the company to the next level. And I think he cared so passionately about the clients that he really cared about them. He didn't want to see anything really happen to them. And so they made the decision to dress the bride and they put the company on the market. And I would say even from your dad's aspect too, I'm not sure how old he was at the time, but also maybe he thinks he probably could if he was even younger too. Maybe you don't want to put that much energy into it because he realizes how much work it's going to be. Understanding the situation that how much more work I'm going to have to do. And generally speaking, also just because you're a good sales guy doesn't mean you know you can step into the role and be a good manager and grow a company because it's kind of different aspects of versus closing deals as a sales guy versus leading a bunch of salespeople, if you will. No, there's no question. I mean, and I also think that while my dad will never admit it, I think his number was a hundred million. And I think when he was, you know, when he was told that that's probably what he was going to get, he's like, that's it. I'm out. Yeah. Especially after the parking stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, he's like, look, this is a grand slam. I never thought it was going to happen. Look what I've been able to accomplish. And I mean, to think that a guy from the parking lot business walked into aviation right through the back door. Because one of the things that I failed to mention, and I probably should, is that especially in business aviation, corporate jets, you don't just wake up in the morning and say, hey, I'm going to go sell them or hey, I'm going to go service them. You were either born into a business that your parents started or you inherited or you got real lucky through some sort of networking because it's a big time legacy business. And here's a guy, downtown Chicago, knows nothing about it, also developed soap and salads, right? Too well, his, his yeah, his dad his, did soaps. Yeah, and the family's been everywhere. It sounds like, and it's been everywhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, certainly no focus in anything. And then the other thing too is that business aviation is very coastal, big pockets where there's a lot of wealth and there's a lot of vacationing. So you'll see Texas, California, Florida, New York, Chicago's never really been a phenomenal business aviation market, which is kind of crazy. So he starts his business in downtown, not a clue and really lucky. And yeah, I think when he started it, he's like, you know, my number is a hundred million. If it ever gets to that, I'm selling. And he was going to laugh his way to the bank. And he did. I don't want to fast forward to that day, but we put the company on the market in 04. We knew what we had in revenue. We knew where the offer should be. There were a bunch of buyers. It was like a feeding frenzy initially. There were so many people that wanted to buy the business. I was being wined and dined like you can't imagine. And I had no idea why. I was so naive in those days. It's like one thing, God, to rewind the clock and be able to do it all over again. I couldn't understand why all of a sudden everybody was my best friend. And it was like big companies, you know? Yeah, that's funny. When actually I went to college, I didn't even know I was quote unquote rushing at a fraternity and I was going to a party and I'm like, why are there all these guys being nice to me? It's like, oh, they want me to be part of their fraternity. Oh, you know, yep. but you're so naive at that age. You don't know, right? Like you're you saying, don't know. right. Yeah. And you're getting in, making sure you like them. And I'm sure you'll say something nice about them to your dad, right? Exactly. And that's what they were hoping, you know, oh, you know, he'll say something, he'll get us in the front door or whatever. And I think they really learned early on, trust is a bloated word and aviation. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people get burned. So, I mean, I was just very cautious over having super close relationships with clients. I just, and that's something that I don't like to do it because I don't like to mix business and pleasure. But in those days being young and having this huge responsibility with my dad, it was more than I was really set up to handle nobody. There's no rule book for this, right? There's no textbook. And that's the problem. If someone doesn't mentor you, tell you what's coming, all of a sudden you're dealing with it and you don't know what to do. And that's exactly what happened. So 
We get to 2002, 2003, my dad was a heavy drinker. Alcohol is not a word that he likes to use. It's not in his vocabulary, but he drank a lot. He drank a lot because he was traveling a lot. He was traveling to crazy time zones. And I honestly think it started off as a way of getting to sleep. And then that turns into a daily habit. And then all of a sudden it's, it's an issue. And he fell down the flight of stairs in his house. At the time, they rushed him to the hospital and I was just happy that he was fine. And then all of a sudden he gets a phone call. We found something. When they were doing the scans, they found a brain tumor. And that was like an earth shattering moment. That was the day that everything really changed because now all of a sudden I had a huge responsibility that I was just totally not prepared for. My dad basically had to step away. And this is why you're trying to sell the company? Yeah, it was all just getting started. The whole thing was just horrific. But yeah, he was real sick. They removed the tumor. He went through rehab and it was scary. I watched my dad age and become very frail very quick and wasn't really sure if he was ever going to fully recover and time passed and he got stronger and stronger. And I remember it was about a year after the operation, we had our big conference in the NBAA. He's like, I'm going to go. He's like, I feel up to it. I'm going to go. He went and bought a fancy hat so he could cover his big, huge scar that he had and walked in with his suit and everybody was so happy to see him. I was like, okay, that's over with. And slowly as time passed, he was able to recover and he got right back into the full swing of things. He got very lucky and we did too. But I think at that point, he's like, you only live once and I get my second chance. So I think he started to change and he mellowed out a little bit. And he's like, Rick's not going to be able to come and deal with the growth of the business. And I don't have it in me anymore. And so we're going to sell it and I'm going to get the number that I want. So all these things started to come together. Which makes even more sense based on what I even said earlier, getting older and stuff. But especially if you had to go through this. Do you imagine? No, I can't. Even if you had to sell it and you made no money almost, you want less stress in your life at that point. But yeah, be able to make money, obviously, and get to a number that he was wanted. So did y'all ended up actually selling it? We sold the business. This was my first lesson and the grass is always greener because my dad really wanted to sell the business and he thought that all that money was really going to make him so happy and, and it didn't. The truth is so much of him, so much of his identity was that company. Ron and Jesse were almost like one word. So when he sold the business, it didn't hit him initially, but a couple of weeks afterwards, he went through major league depression. He couldn't believe what he'd done. And I was pretty bitter. I don't think he and I have ever really spoken about it, but that was supposed to be my company. I was supposed to be the one taking it over. I wasn't old enough. The truth is, is that had they given me the reins, the company probably would have gone out of business or I would have wound up having to sell it because I didn't have the tools in my tool belt and being an egotistical 30 something, you know, you're not going to recognize that, but thank God that they did. Because I think that there was the second act, because if Jesse was my first act and the second act being the Jack collection, which is what wound up happening, was the coolest thing that's, uh, that I've ever experienced outside of VREF. And basically, the long and the short of it is over the few years that I was at Jesse, the decade or so, the last half, I had been asked a couple of times to help people buy aircraft. And I think it was just purely because I either developed a really good relationship with them or back in those days, they didn't have the time to do the research. I mean, again, the internet was in an infancy and there was really nobody doing that kind of work. So I had helped a couple corporations buy aircraft and the checks that I got, those commission checks. It's the worst bait in the world. It's just awful because I was making really good money. So I'm making $200,000 a year and I'll never forget. It was like three weeks before Christmas and this has got to be 2002, 2003 was Raytheon back in those days. Raytheon owned uh, Hawker Beechcraft and I had sold a couple King Airs and I didn't do anything. I mean, I literally picked up the phone, made an introduction and the guy that I introduced actually gave him a check and bought. In aviation, that's rare. 
but I didn't know that. I mean, I just figured that's how it worked. So I make the introduction, they close, I have no idea. And I get this phone call out of the blue, hey, where do we send your commission check? I'm going commission check. This guy's going to send me a couple hundred bucks. I'm like, dude, seriously, don't worry about it. He's like, don't worry about it. Really? He's like, no one's ever told me that before. <laughs> You're like, never mind. I didn't mean to say that. I was just joking. I was joking. Well, I literally said to him, I said, how big is the check? He goes, $50,000. I said, oh yeah, you definitely want to send <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, you got to be kidding me. It was more money than I'd ever seen at one time. It was craziness, right? Even for someone who's making a lot of money, there's those moments where it's like a life-changing situation. And that was a pretty big life-changing situation. You know, it was like, wow, I could actually do this. When my dad said, look, we got a buyer and we're selling the company, it wasn't, what are we going to go do? It's how fast are we going to start our own brokerage business? He and I talked about it a thousand times. Yeah, because you weren't really in the brokerage business still at that point, right? You were just saying, no. okay, so this just happened to be a side transaction. Yeah, it was a side hustle. And I think to moonlight as an aviation broker and do four or five deals a year, are you kidding me? To know what I know now, it was a huge opportunity. It was a gift horse. I didn't realize it. And I thought it was just typical income being in the industry. But at the end of the day, having that exposure and knowing I could do it, my dad and I talked about it a bunch. I was like, these guys are actually writing me pretty big checks. I was like, and I'm not doing a whole lot of hard work here. I was like, you know, if we really wanted to do something cool, we could go buy these airplanes ourselves, have our own inventory, like a car dealership. And my dad loved the car business, still does. I think if he always wanted to be a big car dealer, I think there's that something about that business that he just really likes. And I'm a gearhead and I love any equipment, machinery, and statistics, of course. It was like, this was an awesome opportunity. We get to go buy our own business jets. We get to put them in a hangar. Then we get to do some refurbishment, make them look pretty, and then go sell them to the wealthiest people in the world. And I was like, done. So we sell the business. He takes the hundred million from Jesse. We went to a couple banks and we borrowed close to $400 million in credit facility. And this is when it gets really good because I mean, I'll tell you, this will never happen again. It was the craziest situation in the world. But in 2004 through 2008, we had this gold rush on aircraft. And really what was happening is you had several emerging markets emerging at the same time, uh, primarily Russia. And then second would be Asia and Brazil and Mexico. And they were going gangbusters. They couldn't build the aircraft quick enough to facilitate the sales. So these backlogs are growing. You know, if an average backlog in a healthy market is 18 months to two years, there were backlogs of five and seven years. I literally remember talking to the guys at Falcon Jet. And if you bought a 7X in 2005 or whatever, you'd be lucky to get it in 2013. We were selling positions, paper contracts. So what I did is I took the 400 million. I had a very good customer down in Mexico who happened to have ordered a business jet called the Challenger 300. And it was a paper contract. And he called me and he said, I got a problem. I can't make the next payment. Do you guys want it? I said, send me the paperwork. I reviewed the contract. They had bought the aircraft for 16.9 million. And they were positions now. We're on the open market for 18,750 all the way to 22. So I talked to my dad. I said, look, I don't know what's going on here. I was like, either this guy doesn't know the market or there's something crazy here because we can make a couple million bucks real quick and not have to do anything. And he's like, if you're willing to back that up and guarantee it, he's like, let's use the credit facility. Let's go buy the plane. And so we did. Anyone who Googles this, maybe why they're listening, just look at the Challenger 300 jet. Like these are ultra luxurious jets, obviously, right? Yeah. The Challenger 300 really carved out 
a new cabin class, which was the super midsize. It was a true 3000 nautical coast to coast, eight or nine passenger airplane, wide body cabin, a lot of aircraft prior to that and that, a lot of aircraft that were built prior to that were narrow body aircraft. So this gave it a very open feel and for people who get claustrophobic easily and it happens, this was like alleviating some of that. And it had phenomenal avionics and just, you know, it was at a price point that made sense. And so basically, long story short, it took me 90 days to flip the position. I flipped it to a cellular company in California. At the closing, this is craziness. This was too easy. So what do I do the next day? I called the guys that I bought the position from and said, can you get me more? I mean, it's like we're out of a movie. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, I want to buy more positions. And he's like, sure. And I went and bought five Challenger 300s. Well, you're talking about the guys who are making them now? You're taking the, the profit that you made off this guy from Mexico? So I took the profit. Yeah. So the guy in Mexico, who was my client from the Jesse days, who we bought the first position from, after we closed and we sold it to the cellular company, I called Jose was his name. I called Jose back and I said, Jose, I want to buy more positions. Can we get more aircraft? And he's like, absolutely. I really had no idea what was going on. I didn't understand how it worked. I didn't know why it worked. All I knew was that there was a huge gap and I could take advantage of a market. And even if it lasted a couple of weeks, I was going to make as much money as I possibly could. And by position, just so everyone's on the same understanding, is that you're saying there are people who are manufacturing, you wanted to buy the first, second, third, next position of it and then sell it to somebody else, basically? Say so did. It's a great question. So Bombardier was the man, is the manufacturer of the Challenger 300. And in those days, there wasn't a whole lot of due diligence done on buyers, right? So I could literally pick up the phone, call my local jet salesman and say, hey, I want to buy five aircraft. And he's going to go, okay. And he's going to do his due diligence. And at some point, he's going to ask me to sign a contract and we're going to negotiate. The problem is, is that if you do that, you're going to be paying what everybody else is paying. And I had no interest in paying what everybody else was paying. So the only real way to make something like this work is to A, buy volume and B, cut out all of those guys that get commissions. And I've been around aviation to, enough to know how much these commission checks were. Right. Yeah. Because you got them before. Yeah, exactly. So what Jose brought to the table was the distributor to Mexico. And the distributor to Mexico said, look, we've got a quota we have to meet. So if we can park our quota with you, we'll do the deal. It makes all the sense in the world. I don't have to sell anything to anybody. I don't have to go out there and try and sell these things to Corona Beer and all these big Mexican companies. I can sell everything to you and we don't really care what you do with them. I was like, interesting. Got you. So he got you in the front door of the guy who manufactures them in Mexico. Yeah. He got me in the front door through a distributor of Bombardier. I did the first deal, bought all five contracts, closed on them immediately. And what, you made a couple million on each one of them? Just straight profit too, because you're not really doing anything. No, that was great. So GE, I think, backed the first couple. And then we switched to a little bank called National City, which was in uh, Ohio. Nash City was, for those that were around in 08 and remember the mortgage crisis, Nash City was squarely in the middle of it which is what wound up taking everything down. But at the end of the day, we were making probably on the low end, 700, 800,000 an airplane on the high end. I hold the record to this day of the most profit ever made on the sale of a brand new business jet. And that was 17 million bucks. And I'm, what am I, 33, 34 years old? I mean, I wasn't even old enough to even respect the amount of money that I was making. We were making 30, 40 million a year. And it was just my dad and I. I had two cell phones. 
And then I had a Nextel for Mexico and I was literally on the phone 24 seven. And so we bought and sold the first batch of aircraft that wound up being fast forward now to the third batch. And we bought even more. And that's when Bombardier called and said, look, you guys can't do this anymore, right? They said, look, you're competing with us. And you, you guys think we're stupid? Like we're going to sell you the plane so you can sit on it. And then you're going to go sell it to one of our customers and you're not going to pay us on it. Like, no, that's not going to happen. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I would just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? Yeah, it's okay if it's a little bit in the beginning. But when you keep inching more and more, then you're taking all their potential customers. And that's the issue. And again, I mean, I was young. So for me, it was ego. Right. I was doing this all for ego, big ads everywhere and all my positions listed. And I wanted to be the big shot. Oh, Bombardier saw all those ads. And I remember sitting there and they called. They're like, are you guys that stupid? <laughs> You're advertising these positions for sale. Like, don't tell us that you don't own them. And I'm like, okay, what do we got to do to fix this? Right? Because everything can be fixed. So they said, look, the first thing you got to do is you got to be an owner. You have to operate your own aircraft. Don't think for a second that we're going to be selling positions like this to somebody who doesn't even have the ability to operate their own Learjet. I said, okay. That cost me eight and a half million bucks. They sent the Learjet, serial number 210. We bought it. We immediately put it in Mexico because we had no use for it. And that's a whole separate subject. General rule of thumb, just so everybody knows, you know how you make a small fortune in aviation? No, tell us. That's why we're listening. You start with a large one. And that is an absolute truism. There is nothing more true. Everybody you can think of from Howard Hughes to they all eventually lose it. And it's because this industry is a nightmare. You got regulatory issues. And we've got so many things that are impacting the value of these assets, right? So I've got 300 plus million dollars on the street and, and all these positions. And now they're like, you got to fly your own aircraft. And we can't. We weren't that big shot. You need serious net worth to be able to operate your own aircraft. And for those that aspire to that, $100 million is a dangerous amount of money because it's not enough net worth where you can own a $10 million airplane and start pissing it away, but it's enough where you feel like you can. I've never seen more people get whipsawed financially than those that are worth 50 to $100 million. So even if you buy, let's say, a jet for like $10 million, that's just the asset, but I have no idea how much it costs. Is it because it costs so much for the fuel and everything to upkeep? Exactly. Yeah, you'll spend that $10 million jet is going to cost you $800,000 a year to service. At the same time, it's depreciating like a rock. Yeah, and you're just talking about the asset. I mean, and then you have to get pilots, right, and everybody else to store it, like rent, everything else. Exactly. So Austin, this is the reason why companies like NetJets and WheelsUp have been flourished because what they bring to the table is that turnkey ownership without the actual ownership nightmare. So for people that charter on an airplane, when they drop $30,000 to fly from LA to wherever, and that's a one-way fee, they're like, this is insane. The truth is that airplane's going to cost that kind of money. The fuel alone will cost you that. 
So I'm flying this airplane around like I'm a big shot. And the truth is it was crushing us financially. I mean, for us to write a check for that kind of money and not need it, it would have been one thing if we needed it. There was no way we could justify owning the aircraft and spending that kind of money to fly privately. And look, you can make that kind of money and you're doing well and you just figure it's all going to work out. And then 2008 happened, right? And we were sitting on, I think we had 22 positions that we were sitting on. I had 360 some odd million dollars of the airplanes on the books. They were backlogged in some sort of production status anywhere from 18 months to five years. I had literally had aircraft that were, so I think the last airplane that I got rid of delivered in August. And then my next one that was coming due was a year from then. And the market collapsed at the end of September. And I won't forget that day because it was the day my eldest daughter was born. So the market collapse cost me my first marriage, cost me the inventory. It cost me a lot. But it was the biggest life lesson I ever learned, you know, because there's nothing worse than having it and then one day waking up and not. It's much easier to get through life, never experiencing how the other half lives. And here I am, young and way too much money and made it way too easily. And now the whole world's coming down on me and I had not a skill set in the world to deal with it. How do you deal with banks that want to destroy you? And that was my first experience with litigation and having to deal with hired guns. And we, you know, we went all the way to the Supreme Court of Ohio and without getting into it, we did win the case, but the damage had been done. The damage was done to my old man. The damage was done to my family. And I guess everything happens for a reason. And so the aircraft goes away and all the positions go away. And there's a whole bunch of stories in the middle. But I mean, at the end of the day, I was selling a lot of long range aircraft like global XRSs. And for those were $49, $50 million airplanes without optional equipment. And they would take anywhere from 12 to 24 months to get built. And people would put $7 million interiors in them. And so one of the things we were doing was we were managing the completion of the aircraft. So I sold the plane at green delivery. And just so everybody understands what that means is that the aircraft gets built with your money. So when you're the buyer, you pay a payment schedule to the manufacturer. The manufacturer builds the airplane and they deliver it green. Big airplanes. We're not talking about little piston aircraft, but business jets. They get delivered green. And that means that they're ready for paint and they're ready for their final completion phase. And the final completion phase is when they put the interior in. So we offered as part of the deal, completion management services. So this was like my first experience ever being in a service side of the industry because I had always been a sale. So I'd sell the airplane to the wealthy Russian and then the wealthy Russian had to deal with me until the aircraft got delivered because I didn't want customers going into Bombardier and causing all sorts of rifts with them. And if you remember, they weren't so happy about finding out about how many airplanes we were selling. And so we really got to a point where it was a very good relationship. And as long as everything was managed in terms of the customers, they were happy. One of those things was making sure that these customers didn't go in and complain to Bombardier about things that were wrong with their aircraft. They had to complain to us because we actually were the ones that were selling them. So even after the crap hit the fan in 08, I was still contractually obligated to deal with a lot of aircraft that I had already sold. And there's nothing worse than getting death threats from a Russian. Nothing. I can promise you nobody's ever experienced the fear of God unless a very wealthy Russian oligarch calls you and threatens you. One of those things, you couldn't control it. I had nothing to do with the market collapsing, but now all of a sudden, I was the guy that sold the airplane for too much money, you know, so I'm going to have to fix it. And so I dealt with that for years and it just was depressing. It was a drain on me emotionally. It really... And you weren't making any money on this, right? I wasn't making any money. No, I was basically writing checks every day just to survive, but what was worse... And then dealing with death threats too. So that you just add on... Yeah, it was just like enough's enough. You know, my dad's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, look, we should still broker aircraft, but we're going to do it 
the way we probably should have done it in the beginning. Let's go buy an airplane. Let's put it in the hangar. Let's refurbish it and let's sell it. And let's make a couple bucks. Well, we did. We were very good at doing it. The problem is, is that we had the overhead attached to us when we were making $40 million a year. And it, the one thing I took from all that was check the ego at the door and you don't need a big fancy office. You don't need multiple assistants and you cut costs wherever you can cut costs. And that money eventually winds up in your pocket instead of somebody else's. Yeah. How many people were in your company and stuff? Because I think we've just understood like all the profit. It seems like you were making and flipping and it only sounded like you and your dad, but now you're saying it seems like you got, ended up getting a lot of overhead over time. Yeah, I think it just happens, right? So the more money, more problems. And the more money we made, the more we spent. And I think that the biggest problem you have is that you never really do future math about what you're obligating yourself to. So like when you sign an office lease and the office is 5,000 square feet with an indoor golf simulator and a pool table and a wet bar. Now all of a sudden you have no income coming in. You can't get out from underneath the lease. There's just certain decisions that we made based on a never ending supply of cash that wound up being our demise. There was nothing we could do to get out from underneath that overhead other than just like close down shop. And so staff wise, full time, there were probably five or six, but we aviation is an independent contractor's wet dream. Everybody deals with us on an independent contract basis. So I might have a half dozen guys attached to an aircraft deal. I might be in the middle of a workout with the bank and I already closed it and already took all the money. And now I'm writing checks to pay all these guys who never invoiced us, right? Or the airplane gets delivered. Now I got to write some of the guys that did all the legwork on the completion management side and sat in Montreal for three months. So the money was still going out the door. The truth is, is that when we bought pre-owned aircraft to refurbish and resell, the money was good, but it wasn't enough to cover the overhead. It certainly wasn't enough to get either of my father or, or myself excited because, I mean, you go from making 17 million bucks in a day to $100,000 and it took you four months to do it. It's like, no. There's better ways to risk $2 million. You know, you go buy a $2 million aircraft, you put a couple hundred thousand bucks in it. And if you bought it right, you should be able to make 15 to 20%. I mean, that's just how it works, right? And the banks on a credit facility, they'll play ball as long as those curtailment payments are made. Meaning you have to come up with a percent of what you owe on that capital you borrowed, or they're going to take the plane away. They're going to call the note. So if you deal with an aircraft in a market like you're dealing with now, so you remember 2004 to 2008 was a premium market. You literally, the longer you held on to the aircraft, the more it was worth. And we had inventory, we had XRSs that were going up a million dollars a quarter in value, in paper, right? Reality today, and pretty much for the rest of aviation, is that that's just the complete antithesis of not only a normal market, but an, a real market. Real markets, these assets depreciate. Real markets, these assets can depreciate 20% their first year. So you buy a plane in the wrong time of the year, and it takes too long to do the refurbishment. And guess what? You make your first curtailment payment, and there goes all your profit. And so we learned, unfortunately, the hard way. The first couple of ones we bought were break even, and then we were squeaking out a living. And I just finally said, enough's enough. My dad and I weren't getting along at all. It was getting to the point where we couldn't even have family dinners. And again, you know, entrepreneurs are control freaks and there was nothing left for us to control. We had no decisions in the workouts. The banks were just like, look, we're done. We'll see you in court. Okay. The manufacturers were very good. I can't believe how easy they were to work with to unwind all of that stuff. And we had put down our own money on all those deposits. And then I had negotiated in liquidated damage clauses on each one of those contracts, something that didn't occur back in those days. So I had a backstop in every position and the backstop of my initial deposit. So they couldn't get any more money from me if I defaulted. 
So that was basically it. You know, they took the aircraft, they resold them. So they weren't hurt. They made out like banshees because they applied our deposits to their bottom line and they wound up selling the aircraft for more money than they had originally sold them to us for. And that was that. So now it's 2009, 2010. Yeah, we'll jump back in if you don't mind, 2009, 2010. But I'm just wondering, what point did you actually buy VREF? Was this all under the name VREF? No. So the brokerage firm was the Jet Collection. The dealership was the Jet Collection. The Jet Collection was a three-way partnership between my father and myself, and then a gentleman named Kevin Hoffman, who owned a completion management firm in the Northeast and was an engineer for Bombardier. It was a perfect marriage. He had a huge staff. We were the negotiators. We'd get the contract closed. We could do all the sales, and he would do the back-end work. And it worked great. We did the Jet Collection gig for... So we started in 04 under the name Zilberbrand, the Zilberbrand Group. And with my last name, you just it's a mouthful. So I was like, that's not going to work for marketing. So we went through some variations. I think we switched to Aerospace Group initially for a little bit, and then it was the Jet Collection. I mean, I put a full core press on that name and really built a great brand. And we were selling a ton of aircraft. I think I sold almost $5 billion in airplanes over the years. It was a lot of fun. But when my dad and I stopped getting along, my identity was the Jet Collection. So the things that my father had faced with Jesse, now I was facing for a second time around. I was so mad at aviation at that point. I just wanted out. You know, I decided to go and try and do some other stuff and none of those other things worked out. And at the same time, you know, I'm getting texts and emails and phone calls from some of my other clients in Russia because they're still dealing with issues. And unbeknownst to a lot of people in the United States, in the early 2010s, the Russians were liquidating assets like crazy because all of their income primarily was attached to the price of an oil barrel. And I never really followed the Russian market. I never really had any intention of doing business in Russia. Outside of my dad's dad being born in that region, there was really no ties. So what wound up happening is I got, I call it a con job because at the end of the day, I mean, they convinced me to a couple lawyers and a gentleman who I had assisted in doing an importation of an aircraft for. They convinced me to do Jet Collection Part 2, which was a company called Orem Jets. And I was going to be tasked with basically liquidating aircraft for oligarchs and doing it through the United States because Russians don't have a very good reputation in aviation. That's probably an unfair statement, but you got to remember, you got dealing with major time zone changes. There's very little regulation in Russia and there's very little manufacturer support. So the equipment that goes over there tends to not be maintained to what we would call in the United States up to par, right? So it's just, it lags behind. And so here I am dealing with all these like new big airplanes, you know, globals and what have you, and having to sell them in the United States. And I'm selling them at liquidation numbers because they're Russian and they've been sitting around and not really maintained well. And I was just so sick of dealing with the negativity. I think the straw that broke the camel's back for me was just the lack of transparency and trust in dealing with the foreign market. You know, when you're not there and you can't see how people are really reacting and what they're going to do, you're in a really serious position of weakness. And then when you don't speak their language, you don't know what they're doing at all. I was really trusting people that they were being forthright and they were giving me proper information. And when you misrepresent an asset, it's the kiss of death. And it's not necessarily something that you can't prevent, but I wasn't going to go and jump on a plane and go to Russia every time I took on a list. It had gotten remarried in the meantime. My wife gave birth to a beautiful baby girl and she had gotten pregnant again. So we were now expecting our second child. And I just was like, you know, I'm not going to be flying back and forth to Russia to deal with people. And the second I get back to Chicago, the whole story's changed. And I think a lot of, it was just bad vibes all the way around. And I figured 
I don't know what I'm going to do, but this isn't going to be the legacy. I felt like I was really not being optimized. I was really depressed and I wanted more. This wasn't what my legacy was. So I was talking to my father and I was, you know, basically laying it all out. And I said, look, I can't do the brokerage gig anymore. And I don't want to do it with the people I'm doing it with. And I want to deal with a new direction. And, and I said, you know, what do you think about going and starting a new blue book or a new VREF? My dad's never the type of guy that say no. He's like always encouraging to the point where it's a fault because then all of a sudden you believe that it's a good idea. And I know that about my dad. So I'm always a little cautious about his initial reaction to things. But this was like a really strange reaction because he's like, you know, everybody's got a problem with Blue Book and VREF and the numbers that they put out. Who even owns these companies? So that was all he had to say. So he planted the seed. Now, like a maniac, because I've got nothing better to do. I was making no money selling aircraft. And real quick, so this is about 2010 or so you're saying? So the whole process with VREF, we didn't acquire VREF until end of March 17, but it started in a completely different direction. So VREF was just an opportunity. I'll explain the story and then you'll see where I'm going with it. And real quick before you jump into that, just personally, it seemed like business-wise, you stopped making profit and we're obviously getting kind of frustrated and you told us dealing with Russia and all that. You getting somewhat mildly depressed or whatever. But personally, did you have a lot of money saved up from this? How much did you have in the bank? I don't know if that was an issue too. No, I'm happy to discuss it. So I went pre-divorce. I probably had 10 million in the bank, which was just a ridiculous amount of money. To think that I threw it all away is insane, but easy come, easy go. And I think that that was a really tough pill to swallow. When you don't really feel like you earn it, you don't respect it. When you don't respect it, it doesn't stick around. And so for me, the money was just kind of like a never ending supply. So I didn't really care whether it was 8 million or 10 million, it fluctuated. Who cares? I live in a beautiful home. I built it. I've got everything that I want. I had the Porsche twin turbo. I had the Learjet. I was married to a woman I had met in college. And that was the one aspect of my life that like never really went as planned. My first marriage wasn't a healthy relationship. And so when it ended, like all things that ended, ended really bad. And the really bad ending, unfortunately, was a massive financial hit. Look, nobody ever told me, you know, when you get married, you're going to go make a ton of money. And then the woman that was there the entire time is going to get more than half of what you made just because she was there. And I obviously you can tell I'm still bitter about it. But at the same time, I think I understand. I think a lot of people understand too, man. It's all right. Trust me, I would be bitter too. I can put myself in your shoes. It was horrible. You go from basically... God, I remember like, you know, the day after it was all settled, it was like I had that sickening feeling again, like I didn't have the security. But yeah, so I lost post-divorce after everything was said and done, litigation with the banks and all that crap. I probably had three, four hundred thousand dollars left. As crazy as that sounds, it's all that there was. And that money had to basically take care of me and my new family. And I was not making any money. And you have to cut back your lifestyle big time now too, right? That's the main thing. And that's the hardest part, Austin. So when you're spending the kind of money you spend, you can't turn it off. That's why I say, you know, the hardest thing for people, I think, to do is when they start to make money is to not spend it. You don't know if it's going to last. You don't know how long that cash flow is going to stick around. Is it a blip or is it real? And I think to prove it's real, it has to go on for more than a couple of years and you got to see continuous upward trajectories. And I don't know, it blew it all. But look, it was a lot of fun. I had a great time doing it. I wouldn't change it for the world because basically what wound up happening is I paid for a master's and a doctorate in aviation and how to survive. The truth is in the 26-year career I've had in aviation, I probably have only made money for maybe half of it. You know, and the other half, I gave it all back. 
And that's entrepreneurship, honestly. It seems like all of us who are growing businesses and listening now, half that time you actually only end up making money. The other time you're growing or you're losing money. So I think we all understand that and can understand your frustration with it. God, it sounds so cliche to say, to think that it's how you respond to it, how you get back up and fight. Are you going to fight? Are you going to really put up the fight to get your life back? The cool thing that entrepreneurs have as an advantage is if they were able to take one company to a point of success and be able to recognize what that recipe looks like, it's easy to duplicate as long as you can find that sector, that opportunity. And I think the biggest mistake that people make is they don't stick to things that they know. They're always on the search for something. And my regret was stepping outside of aviation. I mean, as crazy as our industry is, I know it really well. You know, the one piece of advice I would give is just like, if you're my age, approaching 50 and you're going through this. Yeah, passion's great because you put in the hard hours and you're going to care about it and being hungry or having kids and needing to work for somebody else's responsibilities is another thing that'll push you. But you really need to know something so intimately that you can recognize the deficiencies and weaknesses in it if you're going to go down that route and doing what I did with VREF. And so what wound up happening is through my disgruntled conversation with my dad and him planting the seed, go build your own blue book. Because that really, Aircraft Blue Book was started in the 50s. You have a major competitor and it was around for a long, long time. They wrote the recipe on how to value aircraft through a published guide. They had also gone through a ton of bankruptcies and bought and sold and bought and sold. And they had all sorts of issues and it was really old technology. So I'm sitting there going, okay, there's probably an opportunity. And so a couple of days later, my dad calls me. He's like, hey, an old friend wants to talk to you about the appraisal business. And it was Ken DeFore. And Ken is the oldest, most recognized machinery, equipment, aircraft specific appraiser in the industry. He started appraising aircraft before anybody really wanted an appraisal or needed an appraisal. Certainly before the U.S. government and Congress got involved and made all sorts of changes to the way the appraisal practice is governed and there was no ASA or any sort of association governing appraisers. So Ken basically wrote the original textbook. He did all the first training and education seminars for the ASA and he basically taught a bunch of people how to appraise aircraft. And Ken is going to be 69 or 70. I don't want to age him, but he's in his late 60s. So when this whole conversation started, it's 2017, 2016 mid-2016. And he called me and he said, look, your dad and I have been talking and I don't have anybody that's going to take over my appraisal business. This could be something that you could do. And I was like, wow, I never thought about it. So again, it planted the seed and we kept talking and kept talking and I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And I certainly had appraised enough aircraft throughout the years. So I had actually already had gotten an accreditation through another association that wound up going under, unfortunately. So I had to start all over again. But at the end of the day, I had my accreditation. I knew how to appraise aircraft and I was flattered that here was a guy, again, similar situation with Jesse in the 90s with Lou, he was willing to take me under his wing and teach me his business. And if I could figure out a way to transition and take it over and buy it from him, he was all ears. And it was through that long process of basically a year that I determined that it wasn't going to be something that I could just step in and take over. Because a consulting business is the person, you know, as much as he had a company name, it was Ken DeFore. And nobody's going to say, well, let me call Jason because I need Ken. And at the same time, I didn't have the confidence that I was going to be able to do what he did. And that is deal with really sophisticated, complex problems with aircraft and valuations and litigation and damage history. And I mean, I had a lot of work to do to try and sort all this out. So we were talking and he said, look, I really like the idea of starting our own value guide. And what do you think it's going to take to do it? And so I sat down and started mapping it out and then came to the quick conclusion. I shouldn't say so. It probably took me three or four months to figure it out. But 
came to figure out that there was going to be no way to acquire all this historical data. That if there's a weakness in starting a software as a service company in aviation, trying to sell somebody valuation information, if all you have is what it was worth today and you can't tell them what it was worth yesterday, then you can't tell them what it's going to be worth tomorrow. It was an awful situation because I was really excited about the project and then it's like the bubble burst. That's not going to work. What are we going to do? And I was so gung-ho and taking over the appraisal business that it was going to figure out how to get this thing sorted out. And I was going to figure out how to start the new value guide and the new database, no matter what. And I started talking to developers and started putting numbers together and what it was going to cost to recode and re basically build from scratch with these guys that had. And, and then again, another bubble bursting moment. It's like, if you don't have a million bucks to throw at this, don't even waste your time. And then that's without marketing or getting the word out. And nobody's going to know you guys exist. And that's just developing the software you're basically saying. Just developing the software. Yeah. So I was like, oh God. So I call Ken and my dad. I'm like, we need to have a conference call. And I was like, guys, I'm out. I appreciate all the hard work, but none of this is going to come to fruition. There's too many obstacles. We can't put the cash together to do it. I'm not passionate enough with this project to pour all my time into it when I've got no money coming in to feed my family. Ken said, why don't we go and buy the blue book? Just like that. And I was like, what do you mean go buy the blue book? He's like, let's go buy him. I've got a really, really great lawyer. He'll send a letter. I know the guy that runs the blue book. He's retiring. I think we can buy him. I talked to him the other day. I think they'll sell. Okay. Now you got me excited again, right? So now it was like hook, line, and sinker. I'm all in. Because they have all the data that you said you needed to look at that historic to actually find out what the value of a jet is today. Austin, it was more than that. I mean, this was to throw an accelerant on anybody's business. You need a phenomenal brand name in a small industry that's really well-recognized. It has a great reputation. And that's what Aircraft Blue Book was going to do to my appraisal business. I didn't need to worry about being Ken DeFore anymore. I was going to take Ken's appraisal business, merge it in Aircraft Blue Book, and then announce to the world that Aircraft Blue Book is now a full-time appraisal company. And boom, overnight, everyone's going to call. I mean, I was naive in thinking that, but that's really what I thought. We spent months negotiating with Blue Book. And it was just trust your gut instinct because when you think that something is off or something smells, because it does. And those are those moments in life where you need to hold it. You need to walk away, go take a walk around the block. But those moments are the moments that you don't make a really quick decision. I just was getting this sickening feeling in my stomach that they weren't being real honest about the data. So we flew one of the Blue Book guys into Chicago. And I just asked him point blank. I said, look, what am I inheriting if I buy this business? Can you share with me the framework of the software program? Can you share anything about how the database is organized? Because my development team was asking me some pretty basic questions and I couldn't answer them. I was like, there's something wrong here. And the guy looked at me point blank and he said, database. He's like, we don't have any database. I was like, what do you mean you don't have a database? It's like, oh, I've got yellow ledger pads of paper that go back to, I don't know, 60. I was like, come on. He's like, no, nothing is what you think it is. And I was like, oh no. So I thanked him for his time. I walked out. I was pissed. I was like, this is unbelievable. It's like, I knew that there was something going on over there. And I really don't like talking about competitors at all, but you know, they have an opportunity to fix the issues that are broken. And I think by now, obviously a lot of that stuff hopefully has been flushed out and they were able to hire people to key all that data in and make sure that they didn't lose anything. But I was not going to be paying a big premium for a company, basically in name, that I didn't have any reassurances or guarantees that that data was clean and it was good and it was stable and it was something I was going to be able to import and do something with. I didn't have the time, the resources, or the no, the wherewithal to, to do something with bad data. So now we're like, oh, I don't know. It's February, end of February 17, and I'm just like down in the dumps. And there's like, this project is going nowhere real quick. My dad and Ken call and they're like, look, 
You gave it a shot. I think you should still take over the appraisal business. And I'm like, guys, I'm only going to take over the appraisal business if I can figure out a way to market it so that it's not attached to an individual. I was like, we got to build a firm around Ken's appraisal business. And I was again at the same, I was at the crossroads again. You know, how do you turn a services business into a brand, into something that people are going to remember when they think of an aircraft appraisal? How are they going to know to call Ken? You can't just put Ken's name out there with his face. It just doesn't work. I said to Ken, I said, you know, we tried with the blue book. I was like, for shit and giggles, which one of you guys is going to call the guys at VREF and find out if they want to sell. My dad's like, well, who are they? And I was like, well, I don't know who owns VREF. Ken was like, well, I do. He's like, there's a couple guys in Iowa that bought it from the original founder and they've had it for a couple of years. Here's their phone number. And God, we went back and forth with these guys for, it was a father and son, nicest guys you've ever met. Just like truly first time I have ever really believed that there's good people out there because here you have couple Midwest guys who don't know us from anyone. And they took my dad's call and instead of throwing them out right then and there, I said, well, if you want to come to Iowa and have lunch, you know, we'd love to talk. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, it was end of March, 2017. We had an agreement in place. Wait, did you fly into Des Moines, Iowa or what city were they in? Yeah. Des Moines was right outside Des Moines. We actually met. The first meeting was at a truck stop because it was like another 45 minutes closer to Chicago. And if you've ever done the Chicago Des Moines drive, it goes one of two ways really quick or you sit in a ton of traffic. Yeah. Cause I mean, I was wondering even how many people, so just for scale, cause we got international audience too, but the whole state only has 3 million people. They say Des Moines is the biggest city. It has 215,000. Yeah. Well, and that's just it, right? You got these big city folk coming in to talk to these guys in Iowa that absolutely were farmers and couldn't be more further apart in terms of character traits and personalities, right? And I'm going, this is never going to work. You know, I don't know how the hell we're going to get this deal done. They were very intimidated by the big city talk. And they were very quick to point out that we were very good at big city talk. And they're like, <laughs> that's the first thing you have to point yeah, out. Yeah. You know, they're like, put your money where your mouth is. And I said, I'll tell you what, let me go redraft the agreement. I got an idea that'll make everybody happy. And it was basically, I'm pretty good at thinking outside the box, but I knew that they didn't really want to sell the business unless they knew that the business was going to be well sought after, taken care of, and that this wasn't just like some quick VC project or God knows what they were thinking. I sat down and I rewrote this whole management agreement and I sent to Ken and my dad and I said, guys, this is like our last shot. I really think that this is going to work. I think that the obstacles in place that are preventing us from taking the company, it's because it's going to take us a long time for them to believe in us. I was like, so if you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, I am. And basically it was all my time. That's where my money was. It was how much time I was going to invest. VREF, when we took over management, they did sign that management agreement. And it basically gave uh, Ken and myself day-to-day operational control. And we had an equity earnout for the company, which is a company that my dad and another individual started so that there was capital there to, that we could utilize for the growth. So there was an equity payout component to it over three years. And then we would get the company in full at the end of three years. When I took over, the business was doing $600,000. We did 607 the year before. So 2016. 2017, I didn't have a whole lot of time. I think from April to basically October was like, how do you get your land legs? I was so seasick. I couldn't understand what the hell I had done. I went from basically having a normal life, home office, nine to five job, whatever I was trying to do, to now all of a sudden, I mean, I'm working 24 seven. 
I was like, I can't believe how much there is to do. It was a massive undertaking. I all of a sudden was the marketing guy, the sales guy, the, the guy to answer the phones. I mean, I was doing everything. And at the same time, I had to work with all the manufacturers, gather their data, crunch the data. My life got completely turned upside down. But I had something that no other appraiser had. And I had something that I don't even think Ken and my dad or anybody even realized. But I had a brand name. That name, VREF, was the best accelerant. I literally could throw any service at that company. And because the fact that everybody knows who it is, they're going to read it. They're going to acknowledge it. And did they have a lot of data too, like the blue book that you're talking about before, or did they not have that? Yeah, they did. No. So they started in 94. When we took over, they had 24 years worth of historical data. Were they using yellow ledgers too? No, they were using <laughs> index cards. The original founder had built a Microsoft Azure database, and that's what the software was running. It was all fixed tab. It's interesting. Aviation's gone through a lot of transformations. And one of the things that happened is that in the early 90s, when VREF started, there was a half a dozen manufacturers, and each one of them had four or five models, if that, that they made. And each company sold 30 to 40 aircraft a year. And so it was just steady eddy. There was not a whole lot of expectations. Then all of a sudden, fractional ownership came out. Now, all of a sudden, people are doing conversions on engines. And all these things started to happen at the same time. And VREF, because it wasn't built initially to absorb all of those character traits and all of that data, it had no way of tracking it. And so the first thing I had to do when I took over was rebuild VREF. I took the software and rebuilt it from scratch. And everybody thought I was nuts. The guys that in Iowa thought I was crazy. Everybody's like, this is never going to happen. I was like, well, watch. I'll show you that not only is it going to happen, but this company is going to be better than ever. I don't think they initially signed on to my vision, but I noticed after the first six or seven months, all of a sudden people were like really on board with what I was doing. And I was getting a lot of support and it was coming from the marketplace too. And I was getting tremendous positive feedback. Like our clients all of a sudden were really engaged. They were really happy to see that there was aviation veterans that were taking over the basic responsibility of telling every lender, every buyer what these major million dollar assets are worth. That's a major responsibility. And I didn't realize it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to put the hard work in. I'm going to put the hours in. I'm going to fix everything that needs to be fixed. I'm going to show all of these guys that not only do I know what I'm talking about, but I can do it and that I don't have to rely on a whole bunch of people to help me. I can do it all on my own. And that's what I did. And just to understand too, you're just saying they had a semi data set that they had on a computer, like you're saying at Azure, I guess it wasn't like very well integrated in different ways. Like it was almost Couldn't like, be. yeah, like one Excel sheet that just had all the data versus having multiple interlinking Excel sheets that you can easily pull information from and they're intercorrelated much better. And that's what you were going to do. That's what I was going to do. One of the things I really wanted to do was start tracking some of the aircraft that for some reason had not ever been entered into the database. And it was through that process of me having to take new data and try and make it work with an old infrastructure. I was like, I can't do that. Yeah, you probably tried at first. It's like if you have one hard-coded Excel sheet, like we're saying, versus you have maybe hundreds of Excel sheets that are intercorrelated. And like you're talking about, even with the fractional ownership, I could see why this information, you'd have to get it much more often for people, right? Versus before, if you're just having maybe one wealthy guy buy it, if you're having fractional ownership and people are buying and selling parts of it, they need to know quicker, you know, how fast you can, like, I don't know how long it would take them to get an appraisal maybe at first. Did it just speed it up significantly for you? Or were you able to have like a lot more planes in there or maybe all of the above? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a mix, right? So the program was limping along, but at the same time, I'm doing all the development in the back end, and I'm already sitting on all the data. I just can't get it in for the public to use, right? So I had a little bit of an advantage that when somebody called and said, this is what I'm dealing with, I could fix the problem. So I figured the software was doing fine. I could easily add subscribers by pulling a couple tricks out of my uh, tool belt. And one of those tricks was just offering a monthly 30-day subscription to something that had never been made available on a 30-day subscription before. If you have to if you really think about it, you know, there's probably a couple thousand potential aircraft buyers around in any given day. How many of them are career aviation professionals, right? So I'm sitting there going, if the cross-section of our subscriber base, 30% need us every day to do their job because their job involves aircraft, that's great, but that's not where our growth is going to come from. How do we capture the guy that just wants to use us to go buy a Piper Warrior or a experimental aircraft or a home built? And it was through that process that I figured, okay, there's a couple products, A, that, that we can sell that aren't being sold. First thing I did is I took our annual only subscription and I made it available now for 30-day auto renew timeframes for a little bit more money. And we were charging $545 for an annual subscription. Now we're charging $85 a month for a monthly subscription and it's on auto renew. And like all wonderful subscription software packages, if you don't cancel, you're going to get dinged again on your credit card. And you're saying $545, that was it for the year? That's it for the year. Okay, wow. It wasn't a lot of money, right? Right, it's not. I would have thought it would be way more, honestly. Well, and it should be, Austin. I mean, but we couldn't, I had a real tough problem, you know, trying to convince a bunch of subscribers. New guy came in. We don't know him at all. We don't know if he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And all of a sudden, he's going to start charging more money because he wants to get paid. I'm not stupid. I knew that's exactly what everyone was going to think. So we held our pricing. I guess that's smart. Maybe you can slowly increase. And what you're saying by doing 85 monthly, that's it ends up being a thousand, a little over a thousand bucks. At least you almost double it there without them necessarily knowing. And it still seemed way underpriced. But like you're saying, even if you would have quadrupled the price right away, people might have just started canceling. Well, that's what I was afraid of. I figured if I took the value of the software to where it needed to be as quickly as it needed to get there, I was going to lose half of my subscribers. Although, honestly, I think that that's probably an overreaction just because of, I, you know, one of the nice advantages we have is that we really are needed. A lot of people don't realize, but even in court, you know, you can refer to the Aircraft Blue Book or you can refer to VREF. All the tax assessors, and unfortunately for a lot of people, they do subscribe to VREF. They're aware of what all this stuff is worth. They know what it costs to replace it. We do a lot of tax and donation work. So it's an interesting situation when you've got all these moving pieces and you're trying to figure out how to generate more money, but you really, you're stuck in the sand, so to speak. I was kind of running in place. Every time I try and do something, it was like, I don't have the technology to back it up. I was doing everything manually. So I carved out this 30-day subscription. Immediately, people responded. It was kind of cool. Let me back up. Before I did the 30-day subscription, the first thing I did is I went and bought a proper domain name. And if there's low-hanging fruit out there, your domain name is everything. It's your SEO. It's all your ability for customers to find you. But more importantly, it's the ability of your customers to remember you. And I think a lot of people have really terrible domains. 25 letters and you can't spell it and you don't know what it means. And so the first thing I did is I wanted to buy vref.com. We were trading under vrefonline.com and we had a couple other domains, but none of them were really clean. So I went to the marketplace and through the help of the former owners, we were able to buy vref.com. I think it was $7,000 investment. And at the time, everybody's like, you're going to spend $7,000 on a domain. I'm like, absolutely. 
I was like, and watch what happens. Now it's vref.com. It's vref, 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 and you keep pounding it into people. They don't have to remember anything. And so I bought the domain and then I did the 30-day subscription and I'm tracking everything now on through Google Analytics and I've got actual SEO assistance and we know what our churn rate is. And all of a sudden we can see how many new subscribers we're getting and how many sessions and how many pages and all that fun analytics stuff that really means nothing until you one day have a software as a service company. And then all of a sudden that traffic's really important and trying to figure out how long people are staying on your website and what they're doing once they get there. And so I started to figure out real quick that our traffic and our marketing and our ability to sell new products, it was all really tied together. And I think, again, you know, another huge thing that I think I just got in the habit of doing early on was doing all of it every day, write a blog post every day, do backlinking every day. And for people that don't know about SEO, it is a very confusing landscape. My advice is just dig into it on a Saturday and Sunday, immerse yourself totally in SEO for 48 hours and you'll figure it out. It's a game, but it's a game worth playing because the low hanging fruit in terms of finding new customers is all attached to how people respond when they're Googling what you do for a living. And the appraisal business is not something that people Google a lot. Right. If they're Googling it, it's because they want it. It's not like they're just doing it for fun, right? Exactly. Yeah. Nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, I got to get an appraisal, right? Never Googled that till you actually contacted me about doing this interview. So yeah. Nobody knows that it's even something that's required. But in the United States, you cannot buy an airplane with bank financing or credit union financing unless they have an appraisal from a certified or a senior accredited appraiser. Now, the funny thing is, is that there's no real requirement to be accredited or certified. You can call yourself an appraiser. And people will hire you, but you'll get a phone call one day from somebody and says, are you accredited and can you prove it? And when that happens, and if you're not, then you'll, you won't get the job. And that probably is the end because they want to be able to pass the buck. They want to know that you have errors and in emissions insurance, that you know what you're doing and that there's a higher governing body out there that you're having to report to. But unless you've been doing it for a while, or you have a bunch of banks that you do business for, nobody's going to call you to do an appraisal. A, they're not going to know how to find you. B, if they do get referred to you, the first thing they're going to ask is how does this guy know the equipment that I've got? What makes him an expert and what I need done? I realized that I had a couple guys, some experience that have all done a lot of appraisals and they're willing to come under and help us build this business. And we could refer out a lot of the work and it just started to go. It's funny, you know, I look back couple of weeks ago, and we're capturing almost 40% now of those that Google appraisal. They'll find us. While we might not close you know, 10 or 15% of that 40%, there's probably only 30 or 40 people that are Googling aircraft appraisal on a daily basis. So we took vref.com. It was ranked with AREFs. It had an AREF ranking of 37 million or something like that. And I think today it's at 200,000. So we're one of the top 200,000 domains in the world. Our traffic is up five, six percent week on week. 2019, we broke the million dollar mark for revenue just in the software business, which was a huge milestone. So when I took over, we did 607. And then I think we did about 890, 900,000 that following year. And then this past year, 2019, we did almost one one, which is phenomenal. Really happy. Have not raised rates. We had a one tier platform. I'm now in final stages of beta testing on the new platform. So we'll be rolling that out in a couple of weeks. Incredibly excited about it for a lot of reasons. One, we now finally have a real API and integration with the AOPA website. 
So in terms of us being able to upsell our products and our services, the AOPA members never have to leave the AOPA website to do business with us. It's huge. We have all sorts of other products that I've rolled out. One of them is the Carfax of aviation. So there was nobody offering a really comprehensive short report on an airplane. It's background history. Was it damaged? What does the FAA know about it? What is it worth? What did the historics look like on that model? What was it worth last quarter? What is it going to potentially be worth next quarter? And so I'm sitting there going, if our subscribers are the only ones that are getting access to this, how can I sell this as a one-off to people that don't want the subscription? And again, the reaction was, you're nuts. No one's going to pay you a couple hundred bucks when they can enroll for 85 a month. I said, you guys are wrong. I said, there's a lot of people out there that don't have the knowledge base to be able to enter in all the avionics equipment. They don't know what their condition is. And more importantly, if they get the number, they can't trust it. How do they know that what they did was right? They don't. And so I put together a product called VREF Verified. It's a Carfax report. We sell it right through our website. We offer a big discount for AOPA members. We have a couple other marketplaces that have started selling them. And it's really cool. It's not an appraisal. So we're not providing a written appraisal. We're providing a range of value. People send us their data and we put together the report and send it back to them the same business day. I've now built a wizard and a little program that will do all that for the staff so they don't have to sit and manually generate these reports. But that's a nice problem to have. It's always a cool thing to have to solve workload through automation. And when I first rolled out the VRF verified report, not even kidding you, the first month we didn't do any. I think the second month we did one. By month six, we were doing probably, you know, one, two, three a month. It wasn't dramatic, but it was enough where I was convinced that with some proper marketing and exposure, it would take off. We did 20 yesterday alone. So proof is in the pudding. If you put it out there and then you pay attention to it and you nurse it and you nurture it, it will grow. It's just entrepreneurs, because we don't tend to have the focus and the attention span, we tend to go and try and diversify ourselves. And I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. Or necessarily the patience, right? Yeah. I guess my patients have just come with, I hate to say it, old age and children, right? I mean, I was not the type of guy that liked to do hard work. I actually would do anything not to have to sit at a computer all day and type away. And now I thrive off of it. I mean, like I really enjoy report writing. I love the litigation side. I like being able to pour my wisdom and knowledge into an inspiring report and help someone who really needs my help. And then, you know, the cool thing is when I get paid, I earned it. And now all of a sudden that money means way more than those easy checks I was getting 10, 12, 15 years ago. My self-worth is through the roof. I get compensated, not monetarily, but through all these other things because I get so much positive reinforcement from everybody. Hey guys, Rain Motti here, CEO and founder of Hawk Packaging and ZipFox.com. You can catch me on episode 145. I'm sharing the story of how I started my business with just 75 bucks and I grew it all the way to over a million in revenue in just a couple years. Austin and I just had a talk and we were discussing the same thing, how to start a business with 500 bucks or less, the types of businesses that work best, how to do it, what resources you need to use, all of it is there. If you wanna check out that episode, hop on over to the Patreon feed, you gotta become a member and then you can check it out. We'll see you there. I think like long term, I could see how like what you're doing now, you seem like you're growing more of a, a real business that's going to be helpful to people versus maybe just being transactional too. I don't know if that's playing into it at all. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think, look, I mean, God, growing up, I would have never thought that I would ever been in a position where A, I would have been able to help anybody or B, that somebody would have really wanted my help. You know, I think we all have that delusional vision where we're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And the truth is, I didn't want to put in that hard work in school. I just wanted the shortcut. I wanted to get to be the doctor without knowing how to be a doctor. And I think like all young people, that you know, there's just that immediate gratification and how do I get around, you know, how do I get the shortcut? And I'll tell you, the reason why VREF works, in my opinion, is because 46, almost 47, I've got 26 years in an industry. I've dealt with the numerous perspectives of the industry from maintenance to owner and operator to flying to building to doing completion management to appraisal work. I know all the ins and outs and I was able to recognize what the biggest weaknesses were that were fixable. And I think that that's really important because sometimes you can recognize a problem and you can beat yourself to death trying to fix it and it's just not something that can be fixed. My third act was how do I now make all the money back that I lost and then retain it so that I have a legacy for my kids who, you know, I'm going to be 70 when they're probably ready or willing or able or all the above to take this business over. And that's what I want. I've had offers. It's very flattering. We've had calls from equity houses and family offices. We have a couple of suitors right now. There's nothing more flattering than building something and having somebody call you out of the blue because they saw it. I've also had some crazy job offers, stuff that I never thought would happen. I mean, I've actually been asked by major lenders to take over their aviation lending departments, which I think is absolutely insane because I'm the furthest thing from a qualified banker, but it's a very small industry. And I think a lot of the people that have a tremendous amount of influence have really sat back and watched what we did because I think a lot of people thought we were going to screw it up. I'm sure there were a fair share of people that didn't believe that I was going to be able to turn this thing around as quickly as I did and then and really be able to fix everything that was wrong. Without going into the platform, I mean, there were some pretty major things that just because of the way the industry changed, BREF and Blue Book couldn't track properly. It's been a lot of fun. I wouldn't change it for anything, but um, well, maybe losing all the money. I'd like to be where I'm at today without having to go through all those losses. But the truth is, you know, without the bitter, there's no sweet. And I take that very seriously. You know, I think, you know, you got, you get a chance to do something, go do it. There's not, there might not be a fourth act. And I, for me personally, I hope there's not. Looking back and thank you for coming on and sharing your story, Jason. If anyone's interested, if you go check out episode 107, I think that's one of the first episodes you listened to and you reached out to me. It was a guy, Wade Irley, yeah, who actually started a All You Can Fly kind of subscription. And I'm like, I'm never going to have a guy on here talking about airplanes again. And then you reached out and I'm like, this really is fascinating because I never thought about appraisals for aircrafts. I think a lot of people can relate. A lot of the things you were saying can be talked about like in the mortgage industry, like residential or commercials. Like, okay, they kind of understand that. And it's like, okay, yeah, it does make sense why I do need that for maybe if I was going to buy a plane and luxurious enough or why you need it for like a Carfax for it. So I think a lot of that makes sense. Looking back to, I uh, thank you for walking us through gradually your story, but is there any like last words of wisdom or anything else that you'd want to leave with anyone who got a chance to listen to this extended interview? Yeah, I think God to be able to do it all over again. Right. So for the younger people out there, I mean, your education, while you might not realize it, it's everything. And the longer you can stay in school and the the more you can get under your belt. There's two schools of thought, I think, with that. You either get your degree and you really put in the work, or you've got to really put in the work and not get your degree. And I think there's only really two ways to get to the level of being an expert or being someone that people trust to make important decisions. And that's either through your education or through putting the time in. I don't think a lot of people pay attention when they're young. The other thing is the grass is not greener. 
Sometimes things happen for a reason and I'm very superstitious about a lot of stuff that I do, but I think that people are too willing to cut bait, to jump ship and to not put the time in or the effort or the hard work. And sometimes what you have is way better than what you think you're going to get if you're just willing to you know, change a perspective and put a little bit of hard work into it. And then the last is, you know, I think aviation, unfortunately, lost a decade due to the collapse in 08. And it's really sad because now there's a massive gap between the 20-somethings and the 40-somethings. And and I think our industry is hurting because of it. We weren't able to attract a lot of people, you know, a decade ago to, to get into our industry. And now it's a boom between the pilot shortages and, and the lack of staff for infrastructure. Aviation is a huge opportunity. And whether it's through a, a school like Emory-Riddle in Daytona Beach or, you know, South Dakota State or Purdue, it's an amazing industry. It has so much to offer. And I hope that if there's young people listening, that they'll, they'll look into it because there's very few places you can make 150 plus a year and you get to fly and see the world. And you could probably be doing it from a corporate jet, not necessarily an airline. And I just think it's an amazing industry that just doesn't get enough good publicity. And at the same time, I think a lot of people only see it for the haves and the very wealthy. And, and that's not necessarily the aviation that I deal with every day. So I really love working with people that own business jets because they're sophisticated and they have flight departments and it's typically the who's who of corporate America. But I truly enjoy working with first-time buyers, guys that are trying to buy a trainer for their daughter so she can go learn to fly. There's a whole nother side of aviation, general aviation, where the passion in the, on the recreation side and people doing this because they love to fly that'll keep you going. And I think there might only be 85 or so full-time appraisers that do all of this work. And most of them, unfortunately, are attracted to the business jet side. And I think for any of the people out there that want an opportunity, look at GA. There's a lot of stuff out there that you can do and get knowledge. GA, general aviation. Yeah, general aviation. Yeah, piston aircraft. It's what makes our industry so special. It really is. Again, yeah, thanks for coming on. I think I look back and about your story too. It's just every business isn't started the same way. So it's interesting how you're able to get in and how your dad and your granddad had different all types of businesses too before they even got into this industry and the turns that you made even early on, like, you know, being a sales guy and then all these different types of businesses within this industry. So it's just always keeping your eyes open and what you can do. And even if you get in through the family business, it's not sounds like from like, obviously your story, it wasn't just given to you. Okay. Just because I came in, in the family business, I came in as I had to sell to actually make money and being smart about your money and being able to save it, obviously you lost some at some point, but just keeping your eyes open, especially if you know an industry, like you were saying, becoming an expert and then looking at the different options even within there and how you can make another business or another company within that industry. Exactly. And I think if you are lucky enough to be in a legacy situation, you could turn that, you can flip that coin. I think the one thing I learned is that you got to have thick skin. People are not, not everyone's going to be your fan. Not everyone's going to like you. You're going to do business with people you don't like. I mean, that's a big one. So be respectful and know if you're in a small industry that the company name is going to change on that business card, but that person is not. You know, you're going to be working with a lot of people when you get in for the rest of your career. And so don't burn bridges. Just because you don't see eye to eye with someone is not a reason to burn a bridge. And I think being in a legacy situation and having the thick skin, you also got to learn to take everything with a grain of salt. You cannot impress upon everybody that you're deserving and that what you get is justified. There's always going to be a group of people people that are going to hope that you fail. And I think the best way to, to get back at those people is to put your head down and work. 
and be successful. That's the ultimate revenge, right? Absolutely. I mean, those are the things I think drive a lot of different entrepreneurs. So Jason, if someone would say thank you for doing an interview, is there a best way for them to reach out and maybe email you and say thank you? Yeah, absolutely. My email address is Jason, J-A-S-O-N at vref.com. And that's Victor Romeo, Echo Foxtrot. Yeah. If anybody is interested in aviation or wants to talk, I love the feedback. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jason, for coming on and uh, sharing your story here. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might like Patreon episode number three, where I talked with Rick Martinez about how to get funding and be successful in the cannabis industry. Or try Patreon episode number five, where I talk with U.S. Army veteran Jeff Palmero about how he's able to grow a successful software business after fighting in Iraq. And last but not least, try Patreon episode number six, where I dive further in detail with Chad Patel on how to quickly build a successful mobile app without breaking the bank.